Hello, welcome to Full Circle with Garland. I'm a leader in the DEI space and have spent 20 years of my career in human resources. I've been having meaningful conversations about career development with my friends and colleagues, many of whom are rarely heard on stages and podcasts. I am excited to bring you their stories each week. I will be sharing how their diverse backgrounds have shaped their work, the lessons in their career highs and lows, and the importance of recognizing the full circle moments in life. Thank you for joining me, and I hope you enjoy this week's interview. Welcome to Full Circle with Garland. Today's special guest is Madison Butler. I love LinkedIn, and I love meeting people in real life through LinkedIn. Uh, Madison is one of those folks. I'd say with all that's been happening with the, according to LinkedIn, people have been, I think, showing up not as their total authentic selves. And so in the wake of last year's George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, the racial reckoning, um, lots of voices started to bubble to the top. And Madison's is one of those voices that I feel I just was like, we need to, we need to connect because there was so much that she was putting out that I felt was very much things that we all say and do and know, but we've never actually probably publicly put out there in that way. And so what I enjoyed about her posts most were the authenticity of her voice and just her being unapologetic about it. And so for me, having her on today was not only inspiration for me to kind of be like, okay, how, how is she doing this? Um, but two, also just from a generational standpoint, I think this is the future, folks. Voices like this are what's going to take us through. You need to know her name. So I am excited to have you on today because we're just going to get into it. <laughs> I'm so excited. <laughs> so I, I'm bringing you on because I feel like last year there was a lot of Black people on LinkedIn who prior were, you know, already kind of saying some stuff, but I think something about the moment of just, we need to not pretend anymore that this is okay. I mean, I myself, I think became more personal last summer. I usually, my posts are very like, you know, generic, kind of, you know, specific to a particular, you know, flavor of brand or flavor of topic. Um, and so because I work in DEI, I just felt like I couldn't pretend anymore. It was such a heavy time. It was such a heavy moment that I was like, this is problematic. Like, I don't feel good. I don't feel like I can show up to work and be like, hey, everybody, when what's happening in real life is not really great. So for you, how was that moment for you in terms of when you decided, you know what, I've got to, I got to speak out on this? For sure. So I think it's interesting. I actually um, have been pretty out and loud on LinkedIn since like 2018. And I think people just started to like realize I existed this year in the way of like, I think people who were on my side always knew I existed. Um, however, my voice all of a sudden became controversial because people had to look in the mirror all of a sudden. They couldn't look away from it. Normally LinkedIn is a place where you go for like motivation and like warm pep talks, which I already had that group of people. I already had people who were turning to me for that from the black perspective or the queer perspective, but white people kind of ignored me up until this point, which was fine. But then all of a sudden it was like black folks were on the news and we were on LinkedIn and we were also being talked about in their workspaces. So all of a sudden I became like public enemy number one. Oh my goodness. And so when you look at, you were always doing what you were doing and now the time had shifted so that people were now paying attention to you um, what was the most challenging part of like this, you know, it feels like it's overnight, I'm sure. Like it just goes from, I'm just doing what I was doing. And then like suddenly viralness, yep. whatever viralness <laughs> feels like. Um, so talk about that. Cause I, I, I just think it's amazing. And I, I don't know how I would manage or respond to that. So what has been, I mean, how did that happen when it happened to you? What was your kind of initial, just like, what's, what is this? Luckily, I guess mine like happened before all of this. I had a viral post in two, like 2019, like mid-year. And it was like a very basic like two-line post. It was basically like when you leave an organization, if they start to treat you poorly, it's how they felt about you all along. 
Um, and so that was when I kind of started picking up followers and traction. But I think with this specific topic, it was really bizarre and weird to me for me to have to get used to getting death threats. Um, that was like a very new territory for me. It, it'd been a while since I got a death threat. And then they were just all of a sudden everywhere. And I mean, in October, I had someone physically show up at my house. So that was really hard for me to get used to, but also like the part of my brain that was like, well, maybe you just shouldn't do it was, was hard to overcome at times because I know what I, the things I talk about are necessary. And if we don't talk about them, then we'll never change. But at the same time, having a human at my, at my front door was, was a lot for me. That is scary. Did you move after that? Or were you just like, I need to get a restraining order? Like, like, um, so I, I own my house and I, I literally bought it less than a year ago. So like I'm, I'm here. Um, I think the frustrating part was obviously as a black woman, I went back and forth about like, do I call the police? Because I already live in like the world's most white red neighborhood. It, I'm probably the only black person for like a couple miles. And so of course I started seeing some really like gory death threats that were like blood related. And then all of a sudden this person was at my house. And so when I called them, their response to me was, well, maybe you should just be less controversial online. And I was like, great. Awesome. Thank you for that. Um, and, but that was like just further motivation that like this conversation needs to happen because black women continuously show up for the nation for change. And yet we are the most discarded group of people in America. Um, so although it was very frustrating to hear, it was also like, it solidified that the work I do matters. Um, because there are people who still turned around and blamed death threats on on me, <laughs> which if I were white and someone showed up at my house um, because I was a racist, um, the, the narrative would be completely different. Yeah. So we got to go back a little bit. I like jumped right in. <laughs> but like, I know, you know, what kind of upbringing did you have that shaped you into becoming this person that you are today? Um, it's actually really interesting. I, I want to say that I, I decided to come out as black at 25. Um, and I talk about that really frequently in my work because I grew up, I'm biracial. My mom is white. Um, and my parents were always like very adamant that I was black, but also I went to private school. I went like literally from the age of two, um, all the way until I graduated college. I went to boarding school for high school, business school for college. All were very, very predominantly white. And I had lots of experiences that shaped me to believing that I needed to fit into white spaces in order to be liked, to be accepted, and to be successful. In my early 20s, I started dating someone who was just a really terrible person. And in 2016, our breakup made BuzzFeed because he was a racist. And a racist rant of his went viral. I had posted it on election day, not really thinking anything of it aside from showing my Facebook friends that like these are some of the people who are voting for Trump. And that was like a, a real moment of reckoning for me, because when it went viral, the only thing people took from that was that I was a black woman. They didn't care that my hair was straight. They didn't care that I had a very preppy look about me. Like they didn't care about any of that. They just made all of these assumptions based on the fact that I was black. And I had spent 25 years perfecting how to shape shift into white spaces for nothing. And so that was the first time that I really, I truly realized that what it meant and how it mattered. And I also look back and, you know, hindsight is very much 2020. And I think about the times that I called the police on him, the times that I was trying to leave him and the police went out of their way to protect him. Mm. And I recognize now very much that that was because he was a white man. It didn't matter that he had broken my jaw. It didn't matter. Like anytime the police had come, all they saw was that he was a white man and that I was a black woman, most likely living off of him. And so I did a lot of unpacking and unlearning because I harbored a ton of self-hatred. And I also recognize that how many other black women feel this way because society forces it down our throats that being black isn't good enough. It's not the standard. And so fast forward to now, obviously I'm, I'm a little bit different, but I want to help people not go through those scenarios that I went through because had I had these lessons when I was 16, my life would have been very different. And so would the situations I put myself in. Yeah. So as a biracial child and you, and you having, I'd say, seeing the duality or were you, or I guess maybe you weren't totally aware of the duality at that point, you were trying to kind of work within one system 
that you noticed was the one that was going to give you greater access, right? If you code switch, you do things a certain way, you show up a certain way, you get a certain reward, right? Something, something there is rewarding. I, I almost think it was me trying to live in the duality versus uh, like owning that I don't look the duality. I don't present as the duality. When a police officer pulls me over, he's not like, is your mom, is your mom white? Um, they don't know that about me. And I was so focused on wanting to embrace both sides of my identity, um, which I still very much do. I eat all the Portuguese food. Um, however, I identify as black because that is how the world views me. And that is also how I navigate the world. Got it. Okay. So now as a queer woman, let's add this other layer because I, <laughs> I, this is, this is the part that I think intersectionality that people don't understand. Um, or they just think, oh, you know, it's just one more thing, you know, but that doesn't really impact or affect anything. And in actuality, it's just another layer and another lens in which the world not only sees you, but in terms of how you identify. So when you add that, let's talk about that and what that experience is like as a Black yep. woman. And so it's interesting. I actually feel like I was much more comfortable with my queer identity than my black identity. And I think that's because I grew up with parents who the whole time were like, you're black, what are you doing? And so I want to make it clear that like, I was very much going against what my parents were wanting for me, um, especially dating that person. I mean, my parents literally loathed him. Um, but in college, I came home with a woman and no one like blinked an eye. No one thought it was weird. I don't have a coming out story because I just showed up at home. Um, however, it has been interesting to navigate as an adult who's very open about it, um, because inherently queer folks are, are over-sexualized by the media and the way we talk. And so it's like the minute you talk about your partner, people are like, why are you shoving your sex life down my throat? And it's like, oh, my God, all I said was we went bowling. Um, and so that's been really weird for me, because as if I and so I have someone who I identify as queer because I date, date both men and women. I really date anyone if I like you. Um, I never have that experience when I'm talking about a male partner. It's only when I'm talking about a woman or a queer partner that people are like, I don't care who you have sex with. But if I were to say my husband and I went bowling, no one blinks an eye. And it's so normalized because heteronormativity is like what is ingrained into society. And so pair that with being a black woman who's also outspoken. Um, it's definitely created, you know, an interesting navigation for me. Yeah. So at this point, would you say it's more your blackness than your queerness that gets you in trouble? Or is it kind of depending on the audience and who you're in front of and what's going on, it could vary? I think it's honestly just my loudness about humanity. Um, <laughs> so it's typically my mouth that gets me in trouble. I guess in the digital <laughs> world, my hands, because I'm typing. Um, but the thing is, I want to unpack all of the things that exist within corporate America that create barriers for people. And that's not just me. Um, I also recognize intersectionality from the stance of privilege. And so I have a lot of privilege as a native English speaker, a college graduate. Like there are all of these things that also contribute to my success and why I've been successful and why I can be this loud. Um, and I want to bring those things to the table too. Like if it makes someone uncomfortable, I'm probably going to say it. Okay. Okay. So we share the recruiting world. Uh, that's probably also why she and I connected, because as someone who does recruiting, we get to see the blind spots and the biases up close and personal, uh, because when you're working with hiring managers and leaders and whoever else you're doing recruiting for, um, most of the times they've got their ideas about what what they're looking for in a candidate. Like it's almost like dating, but it's not. Um, <laughs> and so when you're looking at, you know, now, you know, your day job, what you do, um, and bringing this same kind of voice and boldness, um, what have you, what have you been doing in that space in terms of not only the work that you've been doing within, uh, the tech world, but also just, you know, people know you probably before they actually get to talk to you right? Or, or not? Or most people are just, they're like, oh, I don't know. She's, I'm going to just, because we tell everyone to research who you're going to talk to in advance. And so I'm sure they get up online and they're like, who's this lady I'm going to talk to? Oh, 
Yeah. Oh. <laughs> so now people do, which is actually like such a relief because my name is Madison. Um, up until I like was well known, people definitely thought they were talking to a white person. So it's actually like a relief to me now that they know <laughs> before they get on the phone with me that I'm black or before they get on a Zoom so we can avoid the like weird look in their eyes when they realize it. Um, but for me, it's again, it's all about breaking down these barriers and it goes all the way back to your job descriptions. Like how are you constructing the language in your job descriptions, what qualifications are you using as barriers instead of necessities? Um, and just thinking about how we can be as accessible as possible to people who are very different than our core demographic. And I think that's such a big issue in tech. Tech is so homogeneous because of the qualifications they put on their resumes. They all want people from Ivy League schools. They want people with a certain degree and they want people who are in the Bay. You wanna know who lives in the Bay? Not, not me. Want to know why? Because I would like to not live in a cardboard box. It's expensive. And why didn't I go to an Ivy League school? Because I didn't want to pay back $300,000 in loans. So when you're putting those as your qualifications, you are literally targeting one core demographic, and that is going to be straight white men. And so then you turn around at your Series C, and you're like, oh my God, I hired 100 chads in a Patagonia vest. How did I, how did I do that? Now I have to bring in a consultant to fix us. When like that didn't have to be the case. You didn't have to create yourself this way. You have to be intentional around your job descriptions, around your qualifications, and also around your interview process as well. And I think that that part is missed, um, not because people are lazy, but because they're trying to move so fast. It's hard to be fast and intentional. You can usually choose one route. Yeah. And so when you're looking at how people are looking at candidates and then making decisions can we talk about, like you said, the quickness and how much impact you can have as you know, someone who facilitates the relationship? What are you seeing as, especially now? I mean, I think everyone's paying attention. Everybody wants to do the right thing. What shifts have you seen from like, say two, three years ago to now? Is there an interest in, in intentionality and, and making longer, taking longer to fill a role to find diverse talent? Um, or is it more like, you know, we're still just going to move as quickly as we can and we need to find the best person, the most qualified person. You've heard this. I know you have. Oh, oh yeah. Um, so I, I, I hate to be the cynic in the room, but I don't think a lot has changed outside of companies want to look good. They want to boost their social capital. They want to be able to say, we did this thing. We put up a black square for BLM. We donated all of this money to Minnesota Freedom Fund. But at the end of the day, I find that most companies care about profit more than they care about people. Um, so I find that a lot of people's diversity needs and wants are for optics, which to me is like almost worse. I actually think we may have like done a disservice now um, because we focus so hard on diversity, but we didn't talk about what has, what has to happen next. You have to be prepared to grow these people, help them thrive and keep them safe. And I think that's the piece that is so far from being where it needs to be. Because if you hire 15 black folks, but 16 quit, you didn't even break even, but people love to publish their hiring numbers, but never publish their attrition numbers. And so for me, yes, I think people have become a little bit more intentional and they've said like, yes, we want to fill this role with such and such, whatever box they're trying to check for in this moment, but they don't actually want to do the work to make sure that, that person has a safe environment to grow and thrive in. And that's the issue for me is we don't focus on the whole employee life cycle now. We're just like hyper-focused on hiring and then they're like, okay, good luck. Yeah. Without like realizing the barriers and inequities that exist within our own organizations already. I totally agree. I think recruiting has become the quick fix. Like if we can just look the part, right. And mm -hmm. then sometimes when we are just, you know, we can, like you said, look the part, have the pictures up, do the numbers. Um, but when, if we were to do a two year, three year after show, how many of these folks are still in your organizations? What are, have they been promoted in any capacity? Are they leading any initiatives and teams and doing anything more than what you brought them in to do? And as an organization, are you, like you said, doing that reflective thinking about what is it that we could be doing better? How is it that we can be tra training, training our people and changing our processes to be more um, 
inclusive, belonging, you know, all the things everyone's talking about. Um, so I'm going to kind of move into the sensibility around this bringing your whole self to work. This phrase popped up like maybe I feel like three years ago, everyone was talking about bringing their whole self to work. And initially when I heard it, I was like, what does this mean exactly? Generationally speaking, when you hear that phrase, what does it mean to you? And what do you think isn't understood in that ideology? So what I think when I hear it is you want me to bring the self that makes me look good to you and the part that makes you look good, um, which means you want me to come in and be your like quiet brown stock photo. Um, so I actually hate the phrase because I know that's not the intention behind it. Um, I think what is missed in the conversation around authenticity is the control lies on the individual. And com companies do not like to give individuals control. When we say authenticity, that means I can bring as much or as little of myself as I choose to work. And I don't think organizations understand that. They think it's got to be this like all or nothing. Either you show up like me or you don't show up at all. And that's just not the case. And I think there are boundaries that people want to set and need to set um, in regards to authenticity. Like some of us are really comfortable talking about our relationships while some of us aren't. And that's okay. But I think companies in general want to like pitch this idea because it's fun and it's a buzzword and it's hip. Um, they want, they know millennials and Gen Z don't want to have to worry about their hair and their tattoos, but authenticity isn't my hair and my tattoos. It's my identity. It's about who I am as a person. And I'm not sure companies are ready to like bridge that gap yet. I think that's very scary to them. Yeah. So what excites you and concerns you most about the time that we're living in? Um, so I will say, I think, you know, obviously for me, it's really exciting to know that little black girls are looking at Kamala Harris, knowing that this is something they can do, that they can be the next vice president. They can be the next president. They can be the next Stacey Abrams. The thing that scares me is the lack of safety for black women in the United States, because if we can ensure opportunity, but we can't ensure safety, we're going to be in a really bad place. And so I think of some of the death threats I get and the lack of protection I get even with them. I think as black women continue to step into their power and people really realize what that means, I think we will continue to be at a greater risk as is black women die at a higher rate than any other group of people in the United States. And I think that will continue if we can't get justice. And for me, we talk a lot about equality and equity and now we've got the Republican party singing about unity um, but we can't have any of those, those things if we can't have justice. And justice looks like accountability. And accountability is not telling me when I tell you I get death threats that I should change my message. And so I worry that we're so far from accountability that we can't guarantee those same little girls' safety. And so what does accountability look like to you if you had, you know, make it your way, the Madison way, what does accountability look like? Um, so I guess like take Breonna Taylor into example. If Breonna Taylor had been a white woman, it wouldn't have been a hundred and some days before her killer was arrested. And she wouldn't have been plastered on the news as saying, well, she shouldn't have been dating this person. Because I could have easily been in that situation where I was dating the bad person, but I was no longer the victim. I it was my bad decision for him hurting me. And so accountability to me looks like changing that narrative. Instead of blaming the victim, blame the acute, blame the perpetrator, blame the person who is committing the bad act. Think about January 6th. We had a bunch of like insurrectionists storm the, you know, the Capitol building of our nation, which is supposed to be the safest building in the country. Um, and then a president who came on TV and was like, we love you. You're special. Um, that's not accountability. <laughs> accountability is making sure that these things are so societally wrong that you know your life will be forever changed by committing these acts, whether it be racism, homophobia, transphobia. They need to be so socially unacceptable that you know you risk your livelihood by stepping into that into that light. And we're not there yet. Racism is still okay. It is still scarier to call out racism than it is to be a racist. And that's the narrative that I need to change. I need to know that I can call out racism because it's wrong and be protected versus like being able to go be a racist and know that like my company will say, I don't represent their views, but they're not going to do anything about it. 
Yeah, it's basically um, walking the talk at this point. You you can talk about it and say it's wrong, but are you taking any action, like real action, to say this is unacceptable? This is not okay. I am I you know I am at a point where I I do understand that. I mean, I think we are all. I think what's interesting is when what I've seen this past year has been where people are on their journey of awakening. Um, I think there's one group that is like James Baldwin, like, you know, it's in a perpetual state of rage, like being a conscious person and understanding what you have to face every day as a person of color, as a black woman, as a black man, like it's a perpetual state of rage. You're like always upset because you know something could go wrong and you didn't even do anything at all. Just living your best life, jogging, laying in your bed at night. I mean, it could be anything, right? We've seen the, that and something can happen to you and you'll still be blamed for it or somehow they're going to find a way to make it your fault. Um, versus I think realizing that there were, there are people who for whatever reasons had no idea that this was the reality and the existence of black people in this country um, for generations. Like, let's be clear, this is not new. Um, And just, I think the, the confront, the con the confrontational feeling of realizing, wow, this is like, this is happening. And we are sitting in pandemic, mind you, where it's supposed to be, quiet supposed to be everyone's just gonna hunker down for whatever amount of time so we can get through this and so it it was very i think it was a lot for certain senses for certain senses and for others it was like yeah this is another day um and so my hope i think is the shift of getting the other group caught up really it's really what it is like you all need to catch up a little faster right because there's a group that's on fire and they've been on fire. Um, and it's hard for us to continue to breadcrumb you to the point of realizing that you have agency in this. Actually, probably yeah. more agency than we do. Oh, 100%. And I mean, I think the other thing is there's that group that's breadcrumbing and they're coming. They're coming along. Um, but there's also that group that is going to hold on to white supremacy and white privilege until their fingers bleed because white supremacy protects their mediocrity and it protects their access. And I think about, I live in the VC world and I live in the startup world. How many people got funded just because they had access, but like bad ideas. And so if you now open up the table for everyone to be sitting at it, a lot less white men are going to see those funding dollars. Cause right now 98% of funding dollars go to straight white men. And so they're going to hold on to that white privilege because it protects them. And so there's a whole group that like, they're not going to breadcrumb, no matter how hard we breadcrumb and no matter how loud we talk and what we talk about and what they see on the news, because they know their livelihood is at stake because they're going to actually have to like work hard and show up and be smart and compete. At this point, they do not have to compete. That's why when you see people complaining that black women are stealing my jobs, immigrants are stealing my jobs. It's not, we're just working 10 times harder because we have to. We have to work 10 times harder to prove that we're valuable where there are people who just walk into a room and are are given opportunity. And I think if people, the breadcrumb people get to where we're going, um, that opportunity isn't going to just be handed away anymore. And people will hold on to keeping that, (laughs) that environment, like I said, because it protects them. Got it. Oh my gosh. Okay. We could keep going, but I'm, I kept (laughs) trying to stay on my, stay on my script. Um, so what are some of the greatest lessons that you've learned about yourself in this journey? Because it sounds like you've always had it in you, but you've decided now to harness and focus it in a certain place. Um, And so now that you're doing that, what is it that you're learning about yourself? Um, I think the two most important things are one, it doesn't benefit anyone, um, but particularly myself, if I water myself down to be palatable to people who already don't like me. Um, I think that's something that society kind of pushes on us that we have to make other people comfortable. And it's not, it's not my responsibility for you to 
think that my identity is safe and that it makes you feel good and warm and fuzzy. I refuse to let people pick and choose what parts of my identity they're comfortable with and rolling with that. And I think the last year has been very eye-opening um, for people who who liked me, but they made me the exception, not the rule. Um, mm. They didn't consider me really black. You're not really black. You're not really queer. But all of that came out with this election, unfortunately. And it was a hard lesson to learn that like not everyone values you. They've just like tucked away the parts of you that they don't like. And on the other side of that, no matter what people think of me and what they say about me and the nasty emails I get, it doesn't change the validity of who I am. Only I can dictate my identity and parts about me that are valid and true. And no one else has agency over that. Oh, this next generation just fires me up because I feel like I'm just like, yes, we're going to be the kids are all right. Isn't what they say. Yeah, we're going to be all right. Um, so I know that your activism has led you to create pathways and organizations um, for you to continue to kind of drive your message and do the work that you feel you need to do. So tell me more about Rage to Rainbows and Triple and the Triple B community. So Rage to Rainbows um, was an idea that I had, um, and it was really, really just an idea last year. I forgot what I posted, but I was like, I cannot keep going back and forth with these trolls on the internet. Like I cannot, I'm so mouthy. So it's hard for me sometimes because I've got a quick mouth. It's like my downfall, but also a gift. But I also know that it doesn't do any good. These people don't come here to my page to educate. They try to like belittle me and make me look less valid and make me look dumb, which I'm none of those things. And so I was like, how can I like put this energy elsewhere in a way that like will still piss them off? Um, but does some good. And so I had posted, it was like a random Sunday. I was like, I'm gonna post this and it's not very spicy. So like, I wasn't expecting to get a lot of traction, but I was like, listen, if you say racist comments to me, here's where I'm donating. If you say sexist comments to me, here's where I'm donating. And it was like a list of like six different nonprofits that I support regularly. Um, and then I got death threats and I was like, well, now I have to do it. Um, people were so mad at the idea of like, me donating in their name to like Minnesota Freedom Fund or to Planned Parenthood that I was like, oh, well, this works. <laughs> um, and so at the time, Emily, who's now one of my best, like greatest friends, reached out to me and was like, I want to I want to support you. Like, I'll, I'll match your donations. And then I had a couple companies reach out to me and say they'd match my donations. And then Emily and I realized, like, oh, my God, a lot of people like want in on this. So how can we make that happen? So over the next six months, we kind of just like worked on what we wanted it to look like, how, what we wanted to build. And so, you know, our intention and our mission is to make the internet a safer space. Um, if you think about all of the harm that the internet does, it's really scary. Like so scary, especially now that we're all online all of the time because of the pandemic. Um, so we launched Rage to Rainbows basically in a way to support missions and organizations that support the victims of these trolls. Because the one thing I know is if you are so comfortable slewing or spewing anger at me on the internet and hate, what are you doing to the black person you work with, to the queer person you work with? Um, most likely causing them a great deal of harm. So I wanted to support organizations that supported those folks. Um, Triple B community actually came from the idea that people kept telling me I needed a podcast. And I was like, okay, fine, I'm going to do it, but I'm not going to give you the podcast y'all were asking for. I'm sure everyone wanted me to kind of do a DEI centered podcast that was very work related, um, which like just isn't on brand for me. Um, but I wanted to be educational about a topic that isn't necessarily as talked about. And so my partner is non-binary. Um, which is a very odd thing because the world thinks of everything in binaries. We're either male yeah. or female, we're black or white. And so we created Bye Bye Binary, which is the name of the podcast. But then when it. we kept thinking about it, we wanted a space for queer folk to exist that was made by them and not by like a straight person trying to capitalize off them, but a place where they could find the acceptance that we've all been looking for from society, from our families, from our workspaces. So we launched a couple of different like safe communities where you have to, you know, apply to get in so we can control our audience, control the amount of trolls that exist. Um, but also just a space where we can exist out loud without having to worry about backlash. And then we also have like a career page um, where we vet companies that are really interested in us, not the box checking, not the, well, we need someone for like rainbow capitalism month. 
Um, so we wanted just a place where people could really trust the source because we're other queer folk making sure that we're doing this in the right way. The triple B community. Bye bye binary. I like that. Thank you. Oh, that's catchy. That's catchy. Oh my gosh. Okay. So you're going to have to, you're going to have to define non-binary. I know what it is, but I know everyone doesn't know what it is. So please explain. So my partner doesn't really identify with either gender. They are just whoever they are that day. And so they don't really feel wildly feminine. They don't feel wildly masculine and they just don't really conform to gender at all. And a a lot of what we think of gender as a social construct anyway, that's why we think women have to wear dresses and men have to wear pants and so on and so forth. Um, So their pronouns are they, them, they kind of just, however they wake up that morning, that's what they roll with, whether it's in regards to how they dress, how they speak, Um, They just kind of show up as whoever they are. Perfect. Okay. So I know you do other things. I know you speak and you have other, you know, endeavors that you're working on. Can you tell me a little bit more about some of those other things? Yeah. So in my, in my free time, um, I, I work with early stage startups on how to create these safe, inclusive spaces before we get too far down the, I hired a hundred chads and now what do I do phase? Um, I think the theory of inclusivity and psychological safety has to be a conversation you're having at day one, not at day, you know, 1,322 when you got funding um, because the damage will already have been done. And it's interesting because people always ask me like why I am not interested in the Amazons and the Googles and the Facebooks of the world. Um, And it's not that I don't care, but I I don't care Um, because I think they're too far gone. I think the impact I have will never like reverse the negative impact they're already having. However, I do think had someone come in and <laughs> help them in the beginning, they'd be in very different spaces. So I'm trying to help build the next Amazon's, Facebooks, and Googles of the world. So the next generation doesn't question if these spaces were made for them. They show up and they know that they're safe, that they can be whoever they are without worrying about having to fit into some corporate pre-created box because someone a hundred years ago said that was the thing to do. Okay. All right. So I just want to thank you because I feel like when I think about the next generation, I think about yous. I think about the, the Madisons of the world, which I believe, like you said, our current environments are not ready. They're not prepared. They're not, they're not even aware sometimes that this is this is this is the norm i hate i i don't i don't even want to say it's the usual but it's the norm like i I think there are more madisons out there than people realize um and the perspective the intelligence the just overall magic like of what a madison can do for your organization but your madison's not going to get there because of all of this other stuff, all of this other stuff that you've got blocking barriers from creating an environment for a Madison to thrive in. Um, And so a part of why I think what you're doing is kind, it's revolutionary, honestly, um, is like you said, holding up the mirror, asking for accountability, making sure that spaces are safe, creating communities so that people can have those safe spaces Um, and social impact. You can't be doing this without giving back in some capacity. Um, And so you're kind of embodying all of those things. I, I just can't wait to see Madison in five years. Okay. Running the world. Um, (laughs) And I'm just, I'm just happy to have you on today because I feel like we need more yous. And I know there are more yous out there, but I think featuring you and, and people who I think not only enjoy you and your content and support you, um, it's everything. So um, I've got two questions I ask everybody right before I end. One is, what does life look like coming full circle to you? Hmm. That's a good question. 
I guess life coming full circle to me would be being able to provide the generation after me with what I know now so that they could have avoided the weird life situations that I went through and this like taking 30 years to show up. I want them to just be able to show up. Inclusion and equity drives my work. But psychological safety has to be the gasoline. Ooh, like that. Okay, so I'm going to put all of Madison's information in the show notes. She, of course, you can find her on LinkedIn. That's where I found her. But, I mean, she's got communities that she's starting, charities that she's donating to. Um, I think, you know, if you want to, of course, connect with her for opportunities, she's doing that as well. But um, she is somebody who I think you all would love to maybe have speak on a panel because she's got a different, a different point of view. And so I'm excited to just have you on today. Thank you for your time. We'll see each other around. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Okay. This was an amazing episode with Madison Butler. I enjoyed listening to how she talks about breaking down the barriers. Um, this is the kickoff to Women's History Month. As you all know, uh, March is Women's History Month. And so uh, I wanted to have an opportunity to talk about what that month means. I think traditionally, you know, we, we do these months so that we can amplify and highlight voices. That does not mean that we shouldn't be amplifying and highlighting voices year round, or we shouldn't be thinking about some of these issues all the time. I think these months are just kind of markers for us to really pay attention um, because I think sometimes we just everyone's just going along their day, not really paying attention. So hearing her speak, the things that stood out for me was this idea of bringing your whole self to work. I love what she said about that because I, when I hear it, I think about also what does that really mean in terms of corporate environments? When I hear that phrase, it really doesn't sometimes I think mean what we want it to mean. I think what people's whole selves look like, most workplaces are not ready for. Um, I think about if you are not a native English speaker and you feel comfortable talking to another coworker in the native language that you share, how is that perceived in the workplace? I think it's fine. I would love to hear people speaking other languages in the workplace, but I know some people who may take offense to that and say English is the, the language and we should only be speaking English in workplaces. But guess what? That's not everyone's whole life self. And so I think a lot of things will be called into question if people really start bringing their whole selves to work. Um, if they start talking about their partners, they talk about their you know, pets, children, whatever the thing is that is of interest to them, if it doesn't fit into a mainstream norm, uh, what will others say about them? And I think that's why people don't bring their whole selves to work is because the judgment that comes with that, the places that aren't safe, um, the people who may not share similar um, politics or share similar outlooks on certain lifestyles and certain you know ways of thinking, um, I don't think as an organization, corporate organizations are ready to do that. And there's a lot of work that has to happen first before you can actually have people bring their whole self to work. So I agree with a lot of what she's saying about it not really being a phrase that is capturing what it really wants to capture. Um, and I think it's become very easy to, you know, put it in the marketing materials and the videos. And it's hard to have people feel like what that whole self looks like is acceptable, especially in spaces where just, you know, having a different name is problematic for some. Having a disability and being able to find accommodations is still difficult. And so we're just, getting to the basics right now, yet alone having people show up and be everything that they want to be, um, it's still very difficult. Um, so I liked what she said about that. Uh, the other thing that she said is justice looks like accountability. And I think we've never really talked about justice in the workplace. Um, JEDI, uh, DEI, and J, uh, there's lots of, I'd say, new acronyms acronyms coming around with justice in them. And I think justice is really speaking to the larger system and what is fair and just isn't sometimes what we even talk about in terms of accountability, 
how things are done, um, what kind of repercussions there are, what kinds of consequences. Are we prepared to call people to task? Are we prepared to do the hard thing? Um, if someone is a you know racist at work, um, are we going to fire them? Because if we're saying we're anti-racist and we are here to you know create an environment that's safe for everyone, and you know someone is a racist, is the organization prepared to let that person go? And I think in in certain cases, we've seen that that's not happened, and it's very hard to work in a place where you see that certain things are allowed. Um, and how can you bring your whole self to work in a place where something like this is allowed? And so it's, I think, a lot happening in workplaces right now where accountability looks like um, calling people to task. It's walking the talk. It's not just putting up this the, the social media statement and the squares. And it's also saying, so what are you actually doing in your organization to ensure that this is being, you know, called out? Or are you making, you know, policies and procedures to ensure that people are, you know, knowing what they need to do and you are going to enforce them when it happens? Um, and so it's going to be, I'd say, what she's asking for and what she's calling for is so necessary, but so difficult. Um, and then what she said about the lack of safety for Black women in the United States um, I was, I was not expecting that answer from her. I mean, I should, I say, I wasn't sure that that would have been her answer. And I love that she brought it up because it is very true. Um, in the same vein that we are celebrating Kamala Harris, um, Stacey Abrams, um, just black women in general, always kind of coming in with the votes coming in with the, um, you know, dose of reality, um, in the same way that everyone thinks that Black women are saving everyone, actually Black women are saving themselves. Um, because as the most marginalized group, oftentimes no one is standing up for Black women. So when you hear people say protect Black women, what they're saying is this is a group that is not protected. Their safety is always an issue. And then when you add trans women to the, to the mix, um, even more marginalized, because I think we don't think about what's happening. I mean, right now, there has been a slew of, you know, unsolved murders, unsolved crimes against trans women, black trans women um, in this country. Uh, and we don't hear about it because it just doesn't, again, make it to the top of the headline or the news. Um, and so there's so much happening with black women um, and the intersectionalities. Uh, what she was saying about the lack of safety is right on. And if, if you haven't watched... There's this um, Netflix uh, documentary called Disclosure uh, with Laverne Cox and a whole host of other, you know, trans folks. And it's an amazing documentary on Netflix that really talks about um, what that group is portrayed as in the media and just what we even think about trans women when we hear trans. Um, and so just I enjoyed my conversation with her because it really brought up so much of the things that are still unspoken, that are still below the surface, and that still need, you know, I'd say recognition. Uh, and then the last but not least, the thing that she said that I was like, this is going to be a quotable. It's still scarier to call out racism than to be racist. When she said that, I was like, that is true. Because what I think is happening right now is um, people are calling it out. You can't hide behind anymore, you know, I'm not a racist, I'm not a racist. We're talking about anti-racism now, which basically means you're either with it or you're against it. There's no middle ground. And so when you hear the word anti-racist, what it means is I can't sit here and pretend like I don't know that it's happening. I can't sit here and, you know, walk a fine line of it's okay to be racist um, in these situations, but in these ones, it's not okay. It's not okay under any situation, under any circumstance. And so when you're calling it out and you're bringing it to the light, um, people are still very, you know, like, well, why are they talking about race? Why are they talking about race? But then when you call out someone who's racist, you know, everyone's trying to help them not look racist. Um, whereas that's their behavior is telling you this is racist behavior. Uh, and so 
it's a system. I think when we think about racism, it can't be just looked at. I mean, there's four types of racism. There's, you know, the systemic institutional, um, there's the interpersonal level. Um, and then there's, you know, the things that happen every day, the microaggressions and the micro invalidations and things like that. And so I think people are only focused on those little ones. Um, and they're actually not little because they impact people's lives every day, especially if they're receiving on the receiving end of that. Um, but when you look at the systems and the institutions that are allowing this to continue, you realize how deep this is. This is bigger than just, you know, an interpersonal engagement or an interpersonal disagreement. This is the whole system is broken and the whole system needs to be dismantled. So I, when she said that, I was like, wow, this is, this is true. Uh, it's still scarier to be called out for racism than it is to be a racist. And so as someone, you know, she receives like lots of mail and death threats. She's seeing it firsthand of what happens when you speak your truth. Um, and then you wonder why people don't speak their truth, because I don't think everyone can, you know, take that. And everyone wants to, you know, carry that burden. So um, I enjoyed having her on because I feel like there are more Madisons out there. And there's tons of Madisons out there. Um, whether they're part of, you know, various movements, various organizations, using their own platforms, creating their own platforms. Um, and so when you hear these folks speaking out, um, instead of saying, oh, why are they so loud? You know, listen to what they're saying, because chances are there's something there, even if it rubs you a certain way that you need to be learning and you need to be, you know, engaging with and thinking about and doing some further research and reading and understanding um, because people are not angry like this or outspoken like this or passionate like this um, if there's not some truth there. Um, and there's usually so much truth of their experience that they're living every day that to stay silent is just another form of oppression. So um, enjoyed having her on. Please, you know, in this Women's History Month, not just focus on, you know, the celebratory things. I think women are doing amazing things, have made amazing strides, but there's still so much work left to do. Um, with 50% of the population, you know, being female, um, and then what's happening, you know, not only in the United States, but around the world. I think there's women's movements happening everywhere right now where women are standing up and saying, we are not going to be, you know, oppressed. Uh, and there's not going to be a space for us to, you know, be quiet about it. So um, in this Women's Month, Women's History Month, please, you know, celebrate the intersectionality of all the things that women bring and all of the things that uh, women are facing. So thank you. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. Please subscribe, share, and tell a friend. You can find me on Instagram at Full Circle with Garland. And if you'd like to be a guest, go to garlandfuller.com. Thank you for listening and sharing your time with me. I hope this next week helps you to recognize the full circles in your own life. Bye-bye.